So we're looking this morning at Joshua chapter 3 and 4, two chapters, and this deals with the crossing of the Jordan River as Israel crossed the Jordan miraculously by God's hand. We might think, you know, such an old event in the Old Testament, really three and a half millennia ago, 3,500 years um, before we're living here today, is this still relevant to Christians? Is this relevant to believers today? Well, many hymn writers of the church have seen great relevance in this event, the crossing of the Jordan. And there's one hymn in our hymn book, number 423. We won't be singing it today. I don't think any of us know the tune very well, but Samuel Stennett wrote this hymn, On Jordan's Stormy Banks, and he writes this, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. All o'er those wide extended plains shines one eternal day, there God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my father's face and in his bosom rest? I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. So we'll see as we go through this text that there is great application here for us. It points us to Jesus Christ and his redeeming work and the life of faith in him as we expect heavenly glory. First of all, I want to go over a a little bit of an overview just for a couple minutes of the sections in this narrative. Then we'll look at three key elements of the story And then three key applications. So first of all, just an overview. Obviously, we have two chapters here in our English Bibles. That division wouldn't have been there in the original Hebrew text. This is really all one story. And I actually think it should probably stop at chapter 5, verse 1. So 3, 1 to 5, 1 is really one whole story. But there are five sections really to this story. The first is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, which is the preparation for the crossing. As they go towards the Jordan, the people are prepared, and Joshua tells them what's going to happen, that the priests are going to go before them. They're to stand far off and watch as the priests with the Ark of the Covenant go in, and that God will actually dry up the waters. He'll cut them off from flowing so that they can pass through on dry ground. So he tells them all of this, and then the second section is the actual crossing in chapter 3, 14 to 17. They go through. The priests stand in the midst of the Jordan. The waters stand up in a heap far away, very far away, it says. Actually, it was further to the north, miles upstream at a place called Adam. And the people, all of them, all of Israel, Pass through on dry ground. And this would have been an immense multitude. This was 
something like 1.5 million people. Okay, you have to remember that. Israel was very large at this time. And so they all went through the Jordan River. Then the third section of this story is in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10a. 1 to 10a, the first part of verse 10. Where we see that God commands them to take memorial stones out of the Jordan River as the water is stopped. And they take these stones, 12 men from each, each tribe. They go to Gilgal where they're lodging and they set up these memorial stones. And then Joshua also sets up 12 stones in the middle of the river so that when it starts flowing, you could see these stones sticking out of the rock. And this was a testimony to the next generation so that whenever they saw them, they would remember this mighty work that God had done for them. The fourth section, chapter 4, 10b to 18, is really the crossing again, sort of repeated and detailed. And then Joshua also records how it ended, how when the priests got out of the, the banks of the Jordan, then the water returned to its place, it overflowed all its banks as before. And he gives a couple more details there. Fifth, the conclusion of the story is found in chapter 4, verse 19 to 5, 1. There we see the date in which this event took place. We again hear about these memorial stones and it's reiterated what, what they're to mean, the testimony they're to be to the children, and also the purpose of this crossing. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, we also see that all the kings of the Amorites and Canaanites who were across the Jordan heard about what had happened and they trembled. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so the nations feared at this miraculous crossing. So that's an overview of the story, and obviously we can't get into all the details, and I'm not going to try. Hopefully, this will only be about a 40-minute sermon today. But looking then at three key elements of the story, first of all, I want you to note that this is a miraculous crossing, a miraculous crossing. Some commentators even I was reading in a Bible encyclopedia, people try to give natural explanations for this event. They say that at times the Jordan would experience landslides. Even the most recent one was in 1927 and the water was cut off for several hours because there was a landslide that went over the Jordan River. And so people try to say, well, this obviously coincided with, with uh, sort of a natural explanation. And yes, God was in control of it, but it wasn't quite uh, a miracle that we would think of. Well, <laughs> I don't believe that for one second. This whole narrative really puts forward the view that this was a miracle of God. This was not something that could be repeated apart from the mighty acting of a sovereign God. 
In verse 5 of chapter 3, you see this. It says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. God was about to do wonders. And that word means something that is too wonderful even to comprehend. This is the same word used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 20, for instance. When God talks about all the wonders he was going to do in Egypt. That he would send all these plagues. That he would bring the people out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. That he would allow them to cross the Red Sea. This was a wonder. It was a marvel, we could say. Something that you stand back and you marvel at. Like when you go to the circus or something, and, or the stampede, and you see people doing all kinds of things you, you couldn't even imagine people doing before. How did they do that? This is the kind of thing that God did. This was not just a coincidence. This wasn't something natural that would happen over and over again. This was a marvel. It says in chapter 3, Verse 13 to 16, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Have you ever seen water standing up in a heap like a pile of dirt? It's water, <laughs> it's liquid. Liquid doesn't act like that. And yet God allowed water to pile up so that it did not come downstream. This is a miracle of God. Verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. The city that is beside Zarethan and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Was it just a coincidence that just as the priests set their feet in the water... That these waters were completely cut off? I don't think so. <laughs> this is a wonder. This is a miracle of God. In chapter 4, verse 18, it says, And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Again, as soon as the soles of their feet were out of the river, the water returned. This is not something that happens naturally. And chapter 4, verse 23, compares this to the crossing of the Red Sea. It says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us 
until we passed over. This was a miraculous event akin to the crossing of the Red Sea, which was a much larger body of water. There's no natural explanation for this. Rather, as verse 24 says, it points to the mighty hand of God. This was so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This was an incredible wonder of the living God. And to get even more of a sense of this, I think we have to understand what rivers in general were like in the ancient world. Rivers to people at that time were deadly and dangerous, and they were a great obstacle. They didn't have the technology that we have to build the kind of bridges that we have today. These were very great obstacles before people. And the Jordan specifically was situated within a difficult valley to get into and climb out of. It was 40 kilometers wide, this rift valley. And it had plateaus on the side where at several locations it was over 4,000 feet high. That's about the height of Mount Robson. If you've ever traveled down past Jasper toward Kamloops, Mount Robson, 4,000 feet. So you imagine these great plateaus, this wide valley, the Rift Valley. And then within that was another valley, the Jordan Valley, approximately 8 to 24 kilometers across. It would vary as you went along. Then within that, there's a floodplain about a kilometer across, which, as it notes here in chapter 3, verse 15, was covered during harvest. During that time, the banks would all overflow. So this was a deeper Jordan than it was at other times of the year. Now, the Jordan River also rapidly uh, goes downward because it starts at Mount Hermon in the north and it goes down through the Sea of Galilee down then through this rift valley to the Dead Sea, which is actually the lowest body of water on the earth. And so you could imagine with that sort of incline, parts of it would be very fast flowing. Actually, ancient peoples that lived around the Jordan called it the river of judgment. Because when someone was accused of a crime and they didn't know if he actually committed it or not, they might choose to throw him into the Jordan River. And if he made it out the other side, well, he was innocent. If he didn't, well, you know he's guilty. <laughs> so this was a formidable river to cross. And one thing also we have to note is that this wasn't just a couple people wading through a river. We see that in Joshua chapter 2, those two spies went across the Jordan and back again. That's one thing for two strong young men to do. But this is the whole nation of Israel. Again, one and a half million people or more. Men, women, children, babies. How are all those people going to get across this deadly and dangerous river? See, this is a wonder 
It's a mighty work of God because they came to something that was impossible. And God made it possible for them. He did what only he could do. Really, chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, calls God here the living God and the Lord of all the earth. Joshua says in verse 10, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and all these groups. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. This gave evidence that the true and living God was among them. That their God was not just a dead idol. That he was not just a carving made of wood or stone that you hang up on a mantelpiece and bow down to. No, those can do nothing. But this is the living God, the true and living one who acts, who works, who intervenes, who does wonders. This is the Lord of all the earth. He has control over all the earth that he created. We see that he is the God who has control of rivers. He has control of the earth and seas and mountains and skies and man and beast. Friends, this was an amazing act of God. And it was worth memorializing. As we see in chapter 4 verses 1 to 10. This was something that they would remember forever. What God had done at the Jordan River. And it led the nations and all Israel to fear him and tremble before him. 4.24 to 5.1. See, this is the God we have in the Bible. This is our God. He is the mighty God who works wonders. He created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. He destroyed it with a flood, save eight people. He sent ten deadly plagues on Egypt. He makes the walls of Jericho fall and the sun stands still. He's the God who conquers nations and stirs up the spirit of a king to send his people back from exile. He's the God who even raises the dead. See, he's a wonder-working God. And this here was a miracle of God. So noting that then, we want to move on to another key to this story which is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is mentioned all over this story. It's central to this narrative. This Ark of the Covenant would go before the people as the Levitical priests carried it into the Jordan. And as it stood there, the waters dried up so that the people could go through. Now what is the Ark of the Covenant? It's not not Noah's Ark, don't get it confused with a large boat. It was actually a small chest made out of acacia wood and covered in gold. And it represented a footstool for the feet of God, their king. So really it represented to the people God's presence with them. God with us. Emmanuel, if you will. It was God with them reigning as king. It also symbolized his holiness. It was a holy item. It was kept in the holy of holies. 
Because God himself is holy, holy, holy. And only the priests were allowed to carry it. And it was not to be treated lightly. As you see in 2 Samuel 6, there's that man Uzzah who tried to grab the ark as it was falling and the Lord struck him down. It's a holy, holy thing because God made his presence manifest there. It also symbolized God's mercy because upon it, the, the top of it was called the mercy seat which was sprinkled with the blood of a sacrificial goat on the day of atonement. In Leviticus 16, 15, it speaks of that. The priest would come. He would sprinkle the blood around that mercy seat as a symbol that the sins of the people had been covered over. They had been atoned for. And they were reconciled to God. It also symbolizes his power. As he went before Israel and scattered their enemies. Numbers chapter 10, verse 35 to 36. It says, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And so this would go before them, showing God's victory, his might, his power as he scattered his enemies. Now, even within the ark, there was more significance. There were actually three things placed inside of the ark. We learn from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. There was Aaron's staff that budded. There was the law tablets of the old covenant with the Ten Commandments on them. And there was also a jar of the manna that God gave them from heaven. And so this chest, this ark, was literally full of meaning, full of significance. It showed God's chosen priesthood. It showed God's covenant and law. It showed his provision to the people of Israel as it went before them. So this ark carried by the priesthood had to go before the people and they had to watch it at a distance so they could follow it where they had not been before. And it, when, it, when it went in, the waters stood up in a heap and were dried up very far away. And at this point, we should also remember the significance of either side of the Jordan River. You see, on the east side of the Jordan River was the wilderness that the Israelites had been wandering in for 40 years. This was a temporary dwelling place. It was foreign to them. It was not home. They were sojourners there. They were exiles and pilgrims. And there were many deadly temptations and trials there in the wilderness. But on the other side was Canaan, the promised land. This was the place where they would have rest from all their enemies and ills. It was their inheritance that God had promised and given to them. It was a place flowing with blessing, milk and honey. It was like a new Eden, a new paradise to them. Their home. 
Well, friends, as we seek to apply this to ourselves, we need to remember that as Christians, we also now are sojourners in a foreign land, aren't we? This present form of the earth is not our home. We really are in the wilderness where God is providing for us spiritual manna and water through Christ. But we are looking forward to a lasting city, a better country, which is our inheritance, our possession through Christ. We're looking forward to a new heavens, a new earth, a place of blessing, eternal life with God forever, a heavenly home. And what is the barrier between us and that possession? Well, it's God's judgment and wrath and death itself that prevents us from going through into eternal life, isn't it? Friends, this has great significance for us because the Jordan represents everything that Jesus has gone through on our behalf as our forerunner into heaven. See, Hebrews chapter 6, 19 to 20 says that we have a forerunner, a high priest who has gone through the veil into the true tent. He's passed through death for us. He's been risen from the grave. He passed through the death's cold wave. He experienced the wrath of God on the cross for us. As God in his love gave his one and only begotten son to pay the price for all of our sins. That we might cross through on dry ground. See, Jesus extinguishes death and wrath. He dries it up. He makes it stand up in a heap very far away from us so that we can walk through on dry ground and we can trust him and enter into eternal life and we can even go through death itself knowing we have heaven on the other side the hymn writers again understood the meaning of these stories in a hymn that we sing he leadeth me it says even death's cold wave i will not flee since God through Jordan leadeth me. Another hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Number 61 in our hymn book. The final verse. The, the whole hymn really is this reflection on the wilderness wandering and then going through into Canaan. The third verse says, When I cross the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Lead me through the flowing current. Get me through to Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. So friends, this shows us Christ, our great high priest, our ark of the covenant, our mercy seat. This one who died for us, who bore God's wrath for us, who went through death and was raised before us as a forerunner that we can go through with him. The third element I want to point out in this story is the exaltation of Joshua. The exaltation of Joshua. In chapter 3, verse 7, 
God says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. See, God's servant Joshua was magnified there as God performed this mighty wonder, even through Joshua, in a sense, as his instrument. Joshua was commanding the people as they went across the Jordan. He was magnified before him, before them. He was glorified. They revered him. They stood in awe of him because of what God did through him. And so they followed him and listened to them. They had confirmed confidence in this leader of Israel. Like a medieval king, you think of, who would have been exalted by winning a great battle. Or a knight in a story who would be proven as great and mighty by slaying a dragon. This great servant of the Lord was exalted. And what God did that day at the Jordan River. Now friends, we also have a true servant of the Lord. As I told you in Joshua chapter 1. Yehoshua. Jesus himself. We have this greater servant of the Lord. A greater Joshua. Who was exalted. In his life. In his death. And in his resurrection. In fact, Jesus really, we could say, was first exalted at that same place, the Jordan River. That was as Jesus began his ministry, that he went to the Jordan. He was baptized by John. And the Spirit of God came upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see a similar thing in the Mount of transfiguration that Jesus was exalted he was glorified he was transfigured before his disciples they saw his glory and Moses and Elijah these prophets of the past were there but they faded into the background and again a voice the voice of the father came from heaven saying this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him we see throughout Jesus' ministry that his signs and wonders showed his glory. They really showed that he was the Lord of all the earth. As he walked on water, as he stopped the wind and the waves, as he healed the sick, as he opened blind eyes, as he casted out demons and raised the dead. The first of his signs, John 2.11, the turning of water into wine, it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, all of these signs and wonders showed the glory of Jesus Christ. He was exalted before his disciples and they believed in him. But most of all, friends, his death and resurrection reveals his glory he was exalted at the cross 
as John 3 says, he had to be lifted up at the cross. And he prayed to the Father in John 17, glorify me, as he knew that he was about to go to that cross. Isaiah 52, 13 prophesies of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it says, behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be exalted. This was the exaltation of the servant of the Lord. That as Jesus died for our sins, he manifested all the glory of the living God. And then he raised himself from the dead and ascended, proving he was the living one. He was dead, yet behold, he is alive forevermore. And he holds the keys of death and Hades, as he says in Revelation 1.18. And one day he will return and again be manifested in glory and every eye shall see him. And we will marvel at him on that day. Friends, there are th- three key applications as well <clears throat> that I want to press home from this story. First of all is that If you're a believer, you are to be assured of God's activity and power. In chapter 3, verse 10, Joshua gives something of the purpose of this event. It says, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you all those peoples. Friend, how do we know? How do you know that you have the living God on your side and that he will conquer all the enemies of your soul and bring you into eternal life? How can you be assured of that? Well, it's this, that Jesus has gone before you. He's already cut off the waters of the Jordan. He's already cut off God's wrath and it stood far away from you. And you can then enter in to heaven after him as your trailblazer. He is the living one. He was dead, but behold, he is alive forevermore. And if he has raised himself from the dead, he will surely raise you to eternal life. See, this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ symbolized there at the Jordan River gives us great confidence to trust in Jesus Christ, to bring us into eternity with him. We know that he's the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in him, we will also live with him. This is the logic even of Romans 8.32. If God gave up his very own son for you, how will he not with him also give you graciously, all things. If God began this work, if he finished it indeed at the cross, he will bring you into the heavenly home that you have believed in. So you're to be assured of God's activity and power because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has crossed the Jordan and so will you. Second, you are to remember the mighty works of God. This is really at the center 
of this story. Joshua 4. The memorial stones brought out from that river were meant to be a memorial forever. A remembrance of what God had done for his people there at the Jordan. We are also to memorialize the mighty works of God. To remember what he's done throughout salvation history. But of course, culminating again in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're to recount God's redeeming work for us. To remember it always. To teach it to our children. You know, if you have kids, they might come up sometimes and ask you, what are you doing reading the Bible? What are you doing praying? What, what is this thing we do at church when we pass out the cup and the bread? What does that mean to you? Well, here to tell them, God saved me through Jesus Christ. We're to retell and remember daily, weekly at church, what Jesus our Lord has done for us. And we will indeed be remembering the work of Christ forever. All of eternity will be around the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who redeemed us. Thirdly, you are to revere God and his servant. In chapter 4, verse 24, again, part of the purpose of this event was that the people of God would fear the Lord their God forever. And indeed, that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord was mighty. And those kings of Canaan did tremble when they heard what God had done at the Jordan. We're to fear this God. That is to revere him, to have a holy and awe-filled reverence for him. But the people were also to revere Joshua. Chapter 4, verse 14, they stood in awe of him. And that's actually the same word there, feared him. They feared him all the days of his life. We also are to fear God. And this is not just to be scared of God. No, we tremble knowing God's might. But this is a loving reverence for God. This is an awe-filled reverence. We stand in awe of this God who has accomplished so mighty a work of redemption for us. And friend, if you're here without Christ, I hope that you see the might and power of our Savior today. That you see that he has done what no one else can do. See, your soul is in peril. Because apart from Christ, you are under the wrath of God. And you will die, and you will die eternally under the wrath of God. That's the peril that your soul is in. And you can't save yourself. Not by your own works. Not by your own righteousness. Not by your prayers and Rituals, there's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough before a holy, holy, holy God to enter into heaven. But Jesus has done what we could not do. He passed through Jordan. He cut off the flood waters of death and God's wrath. And you can look to him and trust in him today. 
And he will bring you safely into heaven to God's throne. Friends, we want a church where the only attraction is God. Where we stand in awe and reverence for God and his Christ. And this means we must always put before us the mighty, powerful work of our Savior Jesus Christ. So that we would marvel at him and sing his praises. Well, may you have assurance in the living God as you walk, remembering his mighty, redeeming work for you, and see him exalted day by day, and stand in awe of him and worship him forever.